Okay, uh, we're going to get started in our lesson this morning, church history. Uh, I have some slides this morning. Uh, church history, we're going to run through them. Actually, I don't need all these. These are last week's notes. Okay. Uh, we'll run through these, these slides sort of by a review. We talked about church history, why study it. Next one. Uh, we talked about this, the Baptist history proposition. There are people in, uh, that purport this among uh, many fundamental Baptist churches. I was taught this in college that church history has always had a line straight from the apostles, straight from the New Testament church in Acts, and there's always been one true church. you know who else claims that? The Catholic Church. They're the only two, well, not the only two, there's Mennonites have done this. In fact, what's funny is the Mennonites claim most of the things that the Baptist successionists claim. Uh, a lot of the groups that the Baptists claim as the true Baptists through the years, Mennonites say, no, 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 they weren't Baptists, they were Mennonites. Okay, so uh, we're going to see, and we're examining some of those groups. So let's go to the next one. All right, the first century, we have what we have in the Bible. We have Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew 16, the book of Acts, and all the things that went with the book of Acts. Next. Uh, the second century, the church of martyrs and confessors, the church faced opposition in two forms starting in the second century. We see blatant persecution in this century and uh, false teaching. Next one. This uh, Polycarp was one of the major martyrs of this, this era. Uh, then we come to the third century, the third century persecution and heresy. We have Justin Martyr. Uh, Origen was uh, mainly known as a heretic, Tertullian. There's um, Tertullian. And then next, uh, the Montanists and the Novatians, we talked about them. That's Novation. They were a break off of the Catholic Church and, uh, tr and truth. Fourth century, the beginning of the state church, we have Constantine. And uh, there's Constantine. And then the Council of Nicaea was a major issue in the church. The, uh, Athanasius that took a stand at these councils. And uh, there's another picture of Athanasius. Augustine of Hippo. And uh, there's Augustine or Augustine or however you want to pronounce his name. And then Jerome's Latin Vulgate produced in 405. And I think that's where we stopped. Go to the 5th century. All right, go to the next note. Okay. Uh, Augustine, or Augustine and the Pelagian Controversy. Um, okay. The Pelagian Controversy. Augustine was very, very uh, adamant, wrote a lot of different things that, that were spread around the church during his, his, uh, later in his life about uh, the idea that salvation is wholly dependent upon God. That man and man in his fallen state, his fallen nature, cannot attain salvation without God. Now, Pelagian was a guy that came along, and he said he was more of a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps-faith type of guy. And he read what Augustine wrote, and he didn't like it. So he started to attack what Augustine wrote, and you have what's called today uh, the Pelagian Controversy, where Augustine defended his, uh, his beliefs against Pelagian, and it sort of circled around the church. So uh, then you have this guy, and we're going to talk about this guy for a little bit. Uh, that's Pelagian, I believe, St. Patrick. Now, you're most familiar with St. Patrick as St. Patrick's Day, right? St. Patrick, and where did... That all originate from what country? Ireland. All right, St. Patrick. Um, this is an estimate birth and death date right here, 389 to 461. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty about the life of St. Patrick, okay? 
Um, but St. Patrick is included. In fact, my Baptist History College textbook claimed St. Patrick as a Baptist. He was a Baptist that went to Ireland and started uh, witnessing and uh, soul winning and that kind of thing and then baptizing um, those uh, converts that he had. And the Catholic Church wanted him to stop. And so the Catholic Church, um, instead of trying to get rid of him, um, absolved his name and made him their own. That's what is taught in Baptist history circles, all right? What is the truth about St. Patrick? The history of Christianity is adorned with counts of those who have become signal servants of God from backgrounds of obscurity. Um, Patrick appears to have been born in the province of Roman Britain, which is Britain, but under Roman control. Uh, He is the son of Calpurnius, a deacon and government official who educated his son in the Christian faith. He spent time in slavery... Uh, and where he, he, when he became a slave, they sent him over to Ireland, and he did all of his slave work in Ireland, and it was while he was over there that he was converted to Christ. He became a Christian. Okay? Um, once he was freed from sa- slavery as a Christian, he became a monk. He went to the monastery and became a monk. Uh, he left the monastery after this to become a missionary to Ireland, so he went to Ireland. He was inducted into the hierarchy. Now, here's the thing that you find in studying St. Patrick's life. While he probably preached the true gospel, and he was genuinely there with the right heart going over there, he never stopped in his life trying to get approval from the Catholic Church. He wanted to be connected with the church and approved of the church. Um, He was inducted in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and was was considered later in his life to be their bishop in Ireland. He believed in salvation by grace through faith alone, but held to Catholic Church teachings on the sacraments and claimed he had dreams and visions from God. Uh, So while this guy taught a true salvation and probably won many converts to Christ, um, I don't think that we could claim him as a Baptist. But we can claim him as a Christian, okay, which should be more important to us, okay? Uh, That's the 5th century. Then we move to the 6th century. All oh, those were pictures of, of, of uh, Patrick. Sixth century and the Paulicians. Um, Justinian I. This, is, this guy was a Roman emperor from 527 to 565. What's interesting about Justinian? Well, Justinian built many churches, including the Holy Wisdom Basilica in Constantinople, which was considered the great, greatest church in Christendom at the time. Um, Justinian was very influential as a Roman emperor of being, trying to make everything very... Uh, part of the church and Christian. Um, well, at that time, probably when... Okay, let's put it... Let's try to put ourselves in this time period. You're 100 or 275 years, maybe some areas of the empire, you're still being persecuted. And you have this guy come to the throne that says, all right, everybody needs to be Christian. Let me ask you a question. How would you react to that? Let, let, let me bring it back to our, our, uh, how we think today. How, does, how do Christians today react whenever our country takes away things of the Christian faith? They, we don't like it at all. We start movements over it. But yet we find it very easy to go back and criticize the early church because they became more and more associated with the government. But yet look at us today. You see hypocrisy much? Just a little bit, okay. 
Um, next is a guy named Benedict. Why is Benedict important? Ben- Benedict is considered the patriarch. And there's Justinian and his wife. Uh, there's Benedict of Nursia. Benedict is considered important because he is considered the patriarch or father of monasticism, meaning he started monasteries and the monks. So the monks, the monk movement of, of this. You become a Christian and you believe that you should separate yourself completely from the world and have nothing to do with the world. So they would go to these monasteries and they'd live there and live out their lives and they would have nothing to do with the world at all. It's completely isolated from the world. These monks, this, this, this movement of monks was started by this guy, Benedict. Okay? Benedict. Um, and then, I don't know if I have pictures of these guys. Uh, Ninian and Columba, they, they took the gospel to the Scots. Yeah, I didn't have a picture. Ninian and Columba were in this century of the church, and they were big into uh, getting the gospel into the the Scots. Now, we think, oh, they took it to Scotland, but you have to understand what was going on at the time. Those that lived in the area we know today as Scotland and were called the Scots were barbarians. You want to get an idea of what these guys were like? Um, Look at the Vikings. It was not... It was basically like, you're going to go over there, uh, you're committing suicide. But these guys uh, became martyrs. They did end up becoming martyrs. But they were able to get the gospel into Scotland and win some to Christ. Next, we're going to talk about this group for a little bit. This group um, originated in the 6th century. However, uh, it, they did exist. Their, their, their belief system and teaching and the, the, the name itself of the Paulicians went on for many centuries afterwards, but we're going to take a break and sort of cover the group of the Paulicians. Why? Because in J.M. Carroll's The Trail of Blood and most Baptist history teachers, the Paulicians is one of the crucial links in that line of the true church. You have a couple of these isolated groups like we've already talked about, like the Novatians and everything, which we've seen were not Baptist, okay? But then you have, they transition to the Paulicians, and the Paulicians for the next 700, 800 years are the Baptists of the Middle Ages. That's what is claimed, okay? Were they? Let's look at what the Paulicians really were. Um, Here's an interesting thing. This is a quote by a guy named J.M. Holliday, who wrote a Baptist history book on successionism of Baptists. He says this, quote, When we find a group in any age who are spoken against by the multitudes, we may rest assured that we were contending that they were contending for the tenets held by the Baptist and suffering under the stigma imposed by the enemies of the truth. So this guy's re, uh, uh, repertoire, if you can, I can't think of a better word, the, uh, the way that he counts somebody in history as a Baptist is if they were being persecuted for... Uh, what, how did he say it? Um, if they were being spoken against by mainstream. Regardless of what they actually believed. If they were being spoken against by mainstream, oh, they're a Baptist. Well, let's look at what they actually do believe. The Paulicians. They were not named the Paulicians from the Apostle Paul. They were named the Paulicians from a guy named Paul of Samosata, Patriarch of Antioch, who lived from 260 to 260... Or he was Patriarch of Antioch from 260 to 268. Paulician teaching was in much obscurity up until 1828. There was a lot of um, unsureness, I guess you can say, or uncertainty. There you go, that's a good word. Uncertainty about what the Paulicians actually believed and taught up until 1828. 
1828, there was a document that was found um, in a Russian-Armenian colony uh, that was titled The Key of Truth, and it's a major statement of Paulician doctrine. We can understand today, we can look at this document and have an understanding of what the Paulicians believed and taught. So, what were their views? Number one, they were anti-Trinitarian. Christ did not become the Son of God until His baptism. They did not believe that Christ was the Son of God. It wasn't until He was baptized by John the Baptist and the dove came down that that's when He became the Son of God. Okay, that's what they taught. Now you have to understand, we talked about this a little bit last time. The prevalence of Greek philosophy that got started in this, in the, with false teaching into the early church was very, very strong. And probably the strongest was the idea of dualism. And we talked about that last week. What is dualism? Dualism is the idea that anything spiritual is good and anything physical or material is bad. You carry that to its conclusions and you have the teachings of a lot of these groups. That's why Jesus could not be God. Why? Because God is a spirit. Jesus was a physical man. Physical, bad. Spirit, good. So there's no way he could be God. So they were very anti-Trinitarian. Um, number two, the work of the cross was not for the atonement of sin. Why? Well, if you needed your sins covered, then something spiritual had to be done, not the physical death of a man. So therefore, they rejected the work of the cross as the atonement for sin. They viewed the Holy Spirit as a creature. There's a prayer recorded in this document, the key of truth, that they prayed quite often, talking about the Holy Spirit created by God. Now, what is the Holy Spirit? He is God. He's the Spirit of God. He is God. So God has no creator. The Holy Spirit has no creator. He is God. Okay? Um, Now, here's the idea of baptism. And this is where a lot of the Baptist historians and successionists jump on these groups because they don't even look at a lot of the things that they actually taught. They just look and see what they believed about baptism, how they practiced baptism, or did they stand against the Catholic Church on anything? How did they practice? Well, they actually did practice sprinkling and immersion. They practiced baptism by immersion. Here's the catch, though. They required those to be baptized to be completely nude. Yeah, and the Baptists say these were Baptists. Okay, I don't know if I want them in my, my corner, all right, um, of history. When by means of the key of truth, the Paulicians are permitted to speak for themselves, it becomes crystal clear that they were not Baptists. In fact, when judged by a traditional creed or standard of orthodoxy, they cannot be regarded as Christians at all. I'm going to say this again in a little bit when we talk about another one of these groups, but what is the, when you're talking about a cult today... When we talk about a cult, what is the fundamental question that requires them to be a cult or a false religion? What they do with who? Jesus. What they do with Christ. What is their viewpoint on Christ? And that determines whether they are Christian or they are a cult or false religion. Now, they don't believe he was the son of God. Today, what would we call them? A cult. But you go to a lot of Baptist colleges and they consider them... Baptists. All right, let's go to the 7th century. The Islamic impact. Islamic impact. Um, first of all, uh, the Christian faith that was produced was like the, uh, the form of godliness. 
without the power of it. 2 Timothy 3.5 What you're seeing as we're going through church history is you're seeing the decline and the decline and the decline of the church by elevating some things and denying true tenets of the faith. And this really starts to pick up pace in the 7th century. Gregory the Great, he became the Bishop of Rome. He was successful in turning most of the European nations into Christian nations. Um, however, uh, they, uh, they were just about people saying, oh, we're Christian, and then marking off the little things. And that's where we read the verse. This is where Christianity took on the picture of they had the form of it, but they denied any power of it. Had no nothing to do with what the Word of God taught. It was let's look Christian, and this really picked up speed here. Now let's talk about Islam. Anytime you talk about the church after six hundred, you have to have an idea of where Islam was. All right, because uh, that was a major play in the Middle East and then the rest of the world from then on out. Um, it was started by, of course, you know who, Muhammad. Muhammad, in 622, he fled to Medina, and uh, there he started to teach these things. He believed that he got a vision from the angel Gabriel, and uh, Gabriel then gave him a revelation of how God wanted things to turn out, and also told him that he was to be his prophet from there on out. And so he began to teach these things, and these tenets of Islam, and all of these things that he believed the angel Gabriel gave him. Um, his following grew to 50,000 within 10 years. 50,000. Now, we may look at that and say that's something else for this time, but think about what technology was like back then. That was crazy growth. All right? And I think you see the hand of the devil in that. Um, uh, what was the church doing while Islam was growing? Well, you have this event. Uh, that's Gregory the Great. Go to the next one. The rise of Islam, next one. Synod of Whitby. Synod of Whitby is not a person. Synod is what they would call, it was an old uh, European word that they would call whenever they had a gathering of church leaders to discuss things. It went from being councils to synods. Whitby is an area in uh, England that we know of today. Uh, and this situation, Synod of Whitby, was what was happening as Islam was growing. Islam was gaining converts. Was the church gaining converts? No, the church was doing things like signing out of Whitby. What it was, they met in England in 684, and they for uh, this went on, this, this meeting, this gathering went on for uh, over a year, and they had rigorous debates over things that do not matter. One of the most heated debates and the longest debates they had was the size of the hats that they were supposed to wear for the clergy. You know, the big, tall, bishop-looking things when you think of bishop. Idiotic stuff. The form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And you see the decline of the church. Um, the 8th century. This moves us to the 8th century. The iconoclastic controversy. Uh, I don't exactly know how to pronounce that word right. <laughs> iconoclastic controversy. What was this involving? The Western church and the Eastern church. The Western church in Rome used the language of Latin. The Eastern church used the language was Greek. The disagreement over uh, at the, the iconoclastic controversy was the use of icons or relics and the worship of God. You had the icon duels, 
which were, called, which were considered the servants of icons that mainly came from the Western church from Rome. And you had the iconoclasts, which were from the Eastern church, which, were, which meant the iconoclast meant breaker of icons. Now, you've heard Brother Steve probably talk about this, about whenever they went on that, that trip with the students and they went and saw this, uh, they were showing them relics. Relics are things that are set up in the Catholic Church um, that they say has some kind of crazy power, which are really ridiculous. Um, like, uh, what are some relics that they have? Uh, like hair from John the Baptist. Hair from John the Baptist. A piece, of wood from the cross. a piece of wood from the cross. I've heard one church that claimed that they had uh, um, breast milk from the Virgin Mary. And crazy stuff like that, okay? Um, this major controversy... Uh, and you're going to see a divide among the Eastern Church and Western Church over the next couple of hundred years as we continue in this, uh, this study. Um, and this was one of the major ones uh, that started it. And uh, it went on and went on and went on. What was the verdict of this? The verdict of this was that icons held no spiritual power. But if you wanted to keep these icons, or what we call today as relics, then that's okay. Now, we look at the Catholic Church today, you can see the Catholic, especially the Catholic Church over there in Europe, and what did they end up going to? That they do have power. So they tried to appease the Eastern Church in this decision, and the Western Church sort of make a medium, a, a come together, but it, it ended up going way far off uh, anyways. Uh, it ended in 787 at the Second Council of Nicaea. Uh, the first guy we're going to talk about is Boniface during the 8th century. Boniface was considered the apostle to the Germans. Um, he evangelized Phrygia, which is the Netherlands, Thuringia, which is Germany, and Bavaria, which is also in Germany. Um, I think I have a picture of him. There's Boniface there, uh, 675 to 754. Um, and he was martyred for Christ in 754. Uh, then you have another guy. This is an interesting story, too. I, yes, all right. This guy's name is Olopan, or Olopan. In fact, there's a lot of uh, uh, hard times. People actually, the spelling of his name, Olopan, or Olopan, Alopan. A uh, lot of mis- uh, different spellings. People will try to figure out how you pronounce his name, how you spell his name. This guy was an Assyrian missionary to China in 780. This is the best portrait I could find of him, but I don't think this is probably what he looked like. All right. They did not discover this guy until the Catholic Church sent missionaries to China in the 1700s. When they did that, they started evangelize, They tr- started trying to convert the Chinese over to Catholicism. When they did that, they found that this guy had already been there a thousand years before, around 780 in the 8th century, and won many converts to, to, uh, to Christianity and uh, ended up dying there, over there in China but never really sent any word home of what he was doing. And it was some documents they found, a tablet that they found with some information about this guy, and uh, so found out that the gospel was actually taken over there by Olopan, an Assyrian missionary, back in 780. All right, so that's the 8th century. Now let's move on to the 9th century. may get done a little early because I have notes up to the 13th century. That's it. That's all I was able to get done this week. All right, the 9th century. Power struggle in the church. We have a continuing problem with the Western church and the Eastern church. Uh, All right, first let me, before we move on past this note on the screen, let me talk about this. The Pope in Rome, which was Nicholas, and the Patriarch in Constantinople, which is a guy named Photius, uh, they battled over who was in charge of the church. (laughs) Who was the leader of the church? Was it the Patriarch of Constantinople or the Pope? And so this became a big thing. It's, uh, 
Um, one of the things that put a great divide in the church at the time, but it was not the final nail in the coffin. That would come in the next century. Next, you have these guys, Cyril and Methodius. They were missionaries to Russia. How many of you have ever heard of the acrylic language? Acrylic language. That comes from this guy. He went over there to Russia with a friend named Methodius, and uh, there they are, great beards. All right, And they tried to take the gospel to um, Russia during this time and uh, died over there in Russia um, and uh, uh, won converts over there. Next is we're going to talk about the Bogomils. Now, the Bogomils is another thing not mentioned by all Baptist historians, but is a group that is included because they are an offshoot of the Paulicians um, in uh, Bulgaria. When the Paulician missionaries moved to Balkan, it gave rise to the Bogomil movement. They practiced rigorous asceticism. Asceticism is sort of like the monks would do. Separate anything that would be any type of physical pleasure. They would abstain from meats. Uh, in fact, telling married uh, couples to abstain from sexual relations. By the way, where have you heard something like that before? Didn't Paul tell Timothy that false teachers would come telling them to abstain from meats and forbidding to marry? It's so, it's so interesting that these, this is a group that is considered Baptist, but yet they taught stuff that Paul said, watch out for. Okay, uh, They rejected the Old Testament and most of the New Testament. They only believed and practiced what was in the Gospels and some of what was in the book of Acts. Uh, so they would be considered today hyper, hyper dispensationalists. <laughs> uh, the Bogomils rejected infant baptism, but it's probably why they're considered Baptists, because they rejected infant baptism. However, they objected all water baptism. Why? Because water was a material element. And all things material were evil because they were majorly dualists. Physical is bad, spiritual is good. Okay? Contrary to the claims of some successionists, the Bogomils were not Bulgarian Baptists. They were advocates of dualist religion, which scarcely resembles real Christianity. Okay? And that's, let's, now let's move on to the 10th century, the Dark Ages. The 10th century, the Dark Ages. The 10th century of the church was in deep decline theologically, but not culturally and politically. You know what I see when I look at, when I've been doing this study of church history? A revolving wheel. Because the more and more that the church got away from the word of God, they got more involved politically. <laughs> yeah, you had more guys with beards. You're finding that a lot too. I can't. I would. You know, I don't have anything against beards. I just can't grow one. All right. Uh, I'm just not old enough yet, I guess. Uh, but um, but the the church was all about political power. Now here's here's one thing that's in, it, to keep in mind. Um, during this time in the church, around the let's see, we're in the 10th century. The popes were not the supreme power among nations. You still had some leaders, but this is where they really started trying to influence that to where the kings were sort of second and the popes were the powerful guys among the nations of Europe. Okay? Uh, this is where that starts to happen. And this is why it's called the Dark Ages. 
the light of the word went out. And the church abandoned it for political and cultural power. They're all about changing the culture and changing the political landscape. And as we see that, we look back in history and see what they did, what happened eventually. They became increasingly less Christian. Because what happens 150 to 200 years after this? The Crusades. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Okay? Um, But I'm telling you, how are we not seeing a parallel with this? I mean, you go on Facebook, which I believe is uh, social media is the new place for people to display their stupidity. I mean, and you find all these people claiming to be Bible-believing Christians. They never cite any Bible for what they say, but they go on and on and on about, bless God, Trump is from God, and, and everything that he's doing is, is exactly right on. I'm like, where do you find that in the Bible? I don't understand how Christians justify such a crazy allegiance to political figures. It makes no sense to me. They're a person. If you can have that, political, that kind of allegiance to a conservative in Washington, or a liberal for that matter, why don't you have that allegiance to the Bible? Sorry, that's, that's my soapbox. But it went along with the Dark Ages, right? Okay, the 11th century. 11th century. Uh, the 11th century is the Great Schism. Now, this is where the Western Church and the Eastern Church officially... This is... Uh, the, uh, Sinclair Ferguson said one of the darkest times of the church during this time was the schism that took place in 1054. It was a rehashing of the Nicene Creed. What was the Nicene Creed? We did go over that in 325. It was basically... The Nicene Council was the idea that they established the Trinity the Holy Trinity, and the deity of Christ, okay? In 1054, the Western Church brings this back up, rehashing the creed that they established in Nicaea in the 300s. They re-examined the language of the position of the Son of God, and the Eastern Church said not to mess with it. So the Western Church are looking back at the language that was used for the Nicene Creed and said, this word may not mean that the Son of God was actually God, The Eastern Church said, it is what it says it is, and boom, you had the great schism that ended up leading to the eventual split of a church as the whole, okay? And so that brings us now to the 12th century, and I've titled this section The Crusades. Now, first of all, we're going to talk about it. This is probably where we spend the most time in the 12th century because a lot happens here. This is uh, getting back to the the succession of of Baptists here. Three groups that are not always included, but the different Baptist history teachers sometimes throw these groups in there. Um, the Petrobrusians, which is started by a guy named Peter of Bruis, um, the Henricians, and the Arnoldists. All different groups that just followed after a dude, okay? Uh, put it in millennial vernacular. All right, they followed after this guy's teaching, whether it was Peter, whether it was Arnold, whether it was Henry. And... Uh, Here's the problem with that. We don't have hardly any documents to determine whether these guys were or were not proponents of Baptist teaching, whether they were good guys in church history or bad guys in church history. The full teaching of these groups will probably never be known, but on the basis of surviving evidence, there is no justification for regarding these sects as medieval Baptists. Next is the Albigenses of France. 
Anybody ever heard of the Albigenses? We're getting a little bit more. They're a little bit more popular group in the Baptist succession history. This is a group. The Albigenses is a group that originated in France. Okay, one of the reasons why I believe the Baptists like to claim them is number one, um, they didn't. The Albigenses, uh, Albi is is uh, means uh, something that has to do with France there, uh, or it's a town in France. So this is a group that jumped on this. Uh, they did not like the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church did, did not like them. And because of this, as we're going to talk about the Crusades, one of the Crusades that happened in France, started by Bernard of Clairvaux, was to try to destroy the, the Albigensity movement. So because of the persecution of the Albigenses by the Catholic Church and their disdain of the Catholic Church. I believe that's why a lot of the Baptist historians would say they're Baptist. But let's look at them. The Albigensians and Waldensians are considered to be offshoots of one group. The Albigensians and then the Waldensians came off of them, but uh, they were a completely different sect with beliefs so diverse that one could not have originated as an offshoot of the other. We're going to look at that. The Albigensians were objects of one of the Crusades because of the disdain of the Catholic clergy in France of the group. Because of their views of Christ, the Albigensians would not be regarded as Christians at all. They denied the deity of Christ, they denied the work of Christ, they denied the, uh, uh, the fact that Christ was the Son of God. All right? And a careful study based on their own documents shows beyond reasonable doubt that they had almost nothing in common with modern Baptists. All right? These were the Albigensians. Next is the Waldensians. The Waldensians. During the same period... Uh, same time period, saw the rise of another religious movement known as the Waldensians. In contrast to the Albigenses, whose dualistic world and life view placed them in radical opposition to historic Christianity, the Waldenses uh, began as a reform movement within the Roman Catholic Church. The sect old, owed its origins to Peter Waldo, known in France as Valdez. So basically about 10 to 15, maybe 20 years after the Albigensian Crusade, where they tried to dismantle the Albigensians, you had this guy named Peter Waldo show up. Now, here's what happened with Peter Waldo. Peter Waldo um, got saved, and he wanted to be, well, I say he got saved. I guess he got saved. He, he converted to Christianity, and he wanted to be part of the church, and he took his faith very seriously. And so much so that he come across some passages where he thought he needed to sell everything and be completely poor and start helping those in the area. And they took on the name of the Poor of Lions. Lion, L-Y-O-N, is the area in France where they were at. So uh, he gained a following there uh, in the area of France, and they called them the Poor of Lions. And they would go around helping people, but they, you know, wore rags. They owned nothing. Uh, and, and they were always helping people. Now this bothered the cat. Now they, they came, and Peter's teaching them, the, his followers, these things, and then they're going out and helping the poor. And then he decides he wants to go to the Catholic Church and say, hey, can I become a preacher ordained in the church? See, Peter wanted to be a part of the church. But here's the problem. The Catholic Church at this time was very, very way off base. I mean, not Christian, really. And the, 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 the guys in the church were like, they didn't like them. Because if they're going to be Catholic, let them be Catholic. If they're going to be part of the church, let them be part of the church. If they wanted to be monks, send them to a monastery. <laughs> what they did not want was them acting like monks here in front of them so it made them feel bad all the time. So for that reason, they hated their guts. 
They're like, these guys are just annoying. Get them out of here. So at first they were thinking, well, if we let this guy go ahead and we sanction him, then whatever, and we can forget about him. But then when they started questioning him about what he believed, they found that he didn't line up with what the church taught. So they rejected him as becoming a preacher for the church. And Peter Waldo said, you know what? I'm going to preach anyways. And so then he starts preaching his own thing, and they became a group. He tried to, uh, to change the church by becoming a preacher of the church and then preaching what he preached. And then when they rejected that, then he became his own movement, and his movement grew, grew um, with the Waldensians. Now, these guys, uh, they weren't completely you know, way off in left field like a lot of these groups they were, um, but they weren't Baptists at all. Uh, they were very monkish asceticism. They practiced a lot of asceticism. In fact, an interesting thing is that they started, they moved out of France. They grew out of France. Peter, Peter Waldo died. In fact, when Peter Waldo died, the teaching of the church or of the, the movement sort of changed from what Peter Waldo taught and sort of evolved into something else. There's actually Waldensian churches today in Italy. You can go to, if you go to Italy, make a trip over to Italy, you can probably find a couple of Waldensian churches today that trace back to, to this guy, all right? The, the key factor here is they weren't Baptists. They were their own thing, okay? And even if they were taught everything that Baptists believe, that's one. We found one in, in, in all of church history that we consider Baptist. Definitely not a line of succession, okay? Uh, but the Waldensians were not that bad of a group, Okay. Uh, next, I want to talk about the Crusades. Crusades, uh, and here's, here's where you have, again, you have the church trying to get polit- change the culture politically and culturally. And I'm going to show you the parallels here. We look at the Crusades today and we say they were wicked. In fact, the darkest moment of the Crusades, I, in my opinion, was the Children's Crusade. How many of you have ever heard of the Children's Crusade? A lot of what the Crusades were was to... Uh, and they, they, they find, I mean, the church was gaining a lot of power and money at this time, so they were able to finance armies. And they were sending these armies across Europe and over to the Middle East to, number one, take back Jerusalem and Israel, and number two, take out Muslims. But the problem was is these guys would run into towns and they'd just start killing everybody. They killed their own Catholic brethren. They didn't care. They were, it, was, it was a very, very wicked time. And... Uh, they would go, it's an interesting study of the Crusades because they would go over there, they'd accomplish their mission, and the Muslims would wait about, you know, a year or two and then come back and then run them off and come back, and then they would send them out there, send the soldiers out there again, and they'd fight the Muslims, and then they'd get beat, and they'd come back very, very unsuccessful. Finally, they had this idea. Send the children. They hired a couple of uh, mercenaries, if you will, we'd call them mercenaries, with some ships, and they packed a bunch of orphans on them bunch of kids and young adults and orphans. I mean, just sent them over there, put, them, put swords in their hands, never trained them, put swords in their hands and then sent them over there. They couldn't get them with armor because they didn't have armor and they didn't want to spend the money on the armor to make armor for, that would fit a kid. So they just stuck them on, a boat, on several boats and, and paid the money to send them over there. They, they're, they're, what they said was, this was what they, they claimed their reasoning was, was because God would bless them because they're the youth and you're innocent. You know, children are innocent, so God would bless their efforts, and they would surely claim victory. 
One of the reasons they thought that they could win was because the Muslims wouldn't be that barbaric to kill children, and so they'd win. Well, they sent them over there. A lot of the kids died. In fact, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, preacher, but I think a lot of them, they, the, the Muslims sent a lot of their bones back to them. Um, and uh, then a lot of them, I think, they, they turned them and they kept them as soldiers and slaves. It was, it was the darkest time of this crusade period. But watch this. What was, let's break this down. And what was the church doing? The church was trying to, trying to change the world and make it Christian by using military might. That's what they were doing. Now watch this. They were using the military and the power of, of war to make the rest of the world come to their belief system. Now, what's different from that between you have a lot of conservatives out there that call themselves Christians that say, we need to have this massive military in these communistic countries and everything and just go destroy them. There's, a, there's not a very strong, a small line from that and what the church was doing. The difference is, is we have some kind of semblance between the separation of church and state. But who all is in support of that in this country? Christians. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that we have to be uh, rollover and that we shouldn't help people and stuff like that. But we need to be careful about what we are passionate about and what the church's mission is. Okay? Of course, it is, it is, it is absolutely fundamental for a country to have a national defense and have a military. That's a, you know, duh. <laughs> we got to have that, right? All right? And sometimes, but we really need to weigh the options before we start going to war with people. And then sitting back in our chairs and saying, yes, we need to go to war with people. Okay? I've seen Christians go on social media and go absolutely bonkers over somebody that doesn't like the fact that our president is threatening this guy over in North Korea. My question is, is what is it to you? Why do you feel like you need to defend him? How about proclaiming the gospel? So many, so many millennial Christians today can recite to you all kinds of things that have to do with conservative ideology, but they couldn't probably quote you five Bible verses or two things of what the, the central doctrines of the church is. Oh, they can say John 3, 16, and they can say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. <laughs> but what other Bible do they know? All right, so that's the Crusades. Two more people in the 12th century. Yeah, two more people in the 12th century, and then we'll be finished today. Uh, Peter Abelard. Um, Peter Abelard, known more for his affair with Heloise than his theology. In fact, if you did a Google search of Peter of Abelard, it'll be all about his love letters to Heloise, okay? Uh, but this guy took a stand on the love of God, sending his son for the world in a time where the teaching of the love of God was very absent in the church. Um, Peter Lombard wrote the theological work, The Sentences. Peter Lombard wrote this in, um, in the 12th century. And what it was, it was a compilation of quotes from early church fathers on doctrine and theology. And then that work right there was then used in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and um, uh, seminary training schools, those kinds of things that they had back then. So uh, he was a major figure there. A prime lesson, finishing up, we'll begin with the 13th century and probably be able to finish church history next time. 
um, but uh, from the 13th century to today. Um, but a prime lesson is that when the agenda of the world becomes the agenda of the church, the church's true calling is set aside. When the agenda of the world, or let me say this, when the agenda of your country replaces the agenda of the church, the church's true agenda is set aside. We've got to remain focused. We've got to remain focused. All right? What is... You know, I, I heard a quote. Uh, um, I was listening to somebody this way. I don't even remember who it was. Um, but he said, Nowhere in the Bible do you see God calling the church to redeem the culture. Our job is not to change the culture. Our job is not to go lobby in Washington in front of the Supreme Court about homosexual marriage. It's not our job. Let me say this. It's not even our job to go picket abortion clinics. I was, I was, listen, I, 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 this has been a very huge time of learning and growth, but I was very, I'm very, I look back and I'm very thankful at our pastor's leadership whenever they had that vote several years ago about abortion in this area. And you had all these churches, and I went to him, I said, don't you think we should do that? And he said, no, because our job is to minister to all of those who maybe haven't had an abortion, and even those that had had an abortion, to reach them with the gospel. And putting up a sign like that may hinder that, so we're not going to do it. And I'm very thankful for his stand on that and his wisdom in that area, because it's not our job. Now, we will preach that it's wrong and that it's murder, but we will also preach the gospel, which is our job, okay? Um, That's church history up to the 12th century. 13th century to present, we'll finish that up next week, and, uh, and we'll be dismissed here. Father, thank you so much for everything you've done for us. You're such a great God. We ask that uh, you'll bless this time together. Uh, Bless our morning service, the worship, and the preaching. We love you and give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.